Hello, and welcome to Game Boys, our gay bi-looking podcast, where we translate nerd culture, and, and let's, let's be, be honest, honest we, we always have, have a lot to go over, so let's get into this right now. Yes, go, 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 go. <laughs> we have an entire slew of, oh, wow, okay, so we, we go a little too fast. <laughs> First off, happy Halloween. Halloween, yes, we had, wow, this is being recorded on Halloween, that's right. By the time you listen to this, it's going to be November, and the year is almost over, and holy fuck... I'm going down a spiral. Anyways, recently we we've we've done another wedding. We did another wedding. It's a straight wedding. It was it was great. It was expensive. Definitely over forty k. But whatever. Impressive. Yes, there were sushi hors d'oeuvres. Never seen that at a wedding before. Yes, and also every single corner of this place looked like somewhere that you could have posted a influencer heaven landscape behind them because every inch of this place was made for an influencer. It felt like. Yep. Beautiful absolutely gorgeous anyways but yes we had a wedding it was straight it's great but let's go on to the other stuff wesley we had a slew of i'm gonna call it halloween mania stuff (laughs) pretty much yeah just watching spooky movies starting with one that's been on your list ever since the season finale of what we do in the shadows season one i think yes because of the very interesting cameo of one tilda swinton in that finale, no, not finale, kind of, it's hard to forget that that's not the finale because of how many, whatever. Whatever. Anyways, yes, it kind of stuck out that Tilda Swinton was playing a vampire in that show amongst a cast of other actors who have all played vampires before. So we looked this up and went, when has Tilda Swinton played a vampire before? And this is the movie. It's... Only Lovers Left Alive. Only Lovers Left Alive. <laughs> Before Thank you go you. into yes. it. And I thought we'd already said the title. Nope. No. Uh, yes. Only Lovers Left Alive, where she plays opposite Tom, Tom Hiddleston. Hiddleston. And they are both playing vampires of at least 250 years of age, I think. Somewhere in that area. Even I want to say even longer, because I, I, they're Adam and Eve. Right. They're not. They're At, not that Adam and Eve. But they but might as well be. I, I guess, yes. They've been alive for quite a while, and this is just sort of a a slice of life, of unlife, I guess. Ha ha ha. And yeah, it's just their modern day-to-day struggles with feeding and the media and their extended families and just how they survive each night, but also framed with... Their relationship and how do they work together? What does their love look like in the afterlife? Yes, I do think this is the most slice of life, slice of life movie I've ever seen because it it truly doesn't have much of a plot other than uh, just relationships amongst vampires yeah. and seeing how you interact with those and also live out lives with the masquerade quote. Yeah, which it's it's a little unclear how many vampires are in this world. Certainly not a lot. And the idea is these seem to be the only lovers left alive and that kind of more or less... The, the idea of isolation is certainly a recurring theme in this film. Yes, absolutely. Overall, this is a fantastic movie to put on at any point of the year. If you would like to listen to it during a more sensual time of year, whether it be Valentine's Day or an anniversary, that also would work. Yeah, I'm probably going to pull this out and watch it alone on Valentine's Day. I mean, you're welcome to join me. Wow. (laughs) I guess dinner for one at Wesley. Possibly. We'll see. Fuck right off. Anyways. Go into this movie with the expectation that you can just 
enjoy watching people act. Yes. that That's phenomenal performances, but that's just about all there is to it. Yeah, I don't think, like, again, I cannot tell you what the plot would be other than them just existing. Yeah, totally arbitrary start point. There's kind of a climax, kind of, but then it sort of resolves itself somewhat cleanly, somewhat messily. You get a sense of where they're going from here, and then it just ends. And that's fine. Like, I I was not left unsatisfied. My Neighbor Totoro might be another example to, to point to for arbitrary endpoints. Hmm. I think that would make sense. It seems like the journey had just begun, more or less. Yeah, it, it was far more jarring in Totoro, in my opinion, but it's the same sort of just, yep, we're done now. Yeah, I think that would absolutely make sense. But overall, yes, 100%. This is a film that deserves to have eyes on it. And honestly, just given how little I've heard about it, definitely needs some kind of boost up there. So if people are interested and want a... A slice of life, because I need to say it at least like ten more times before we're done here. Was it gay at all? It Everyone seemed very gay. Mm. Like, our two leads are just that genderqueer that it almost seems gay, even though they're they're vaguely coded as, as female and male. They, they never explicitly go after same sex, but it is a film about a love that has transcended time, more or less. These are two vampires that clearly have loved each other for many years and still love each other even though they live far apart. And the premise of the movie is them getting together for the first time in a couple decades for very, I wouldn't say selfish reasons, more like I need this reasons. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really interesting watching the relationship dynamics unfold because it starts out with, it seems as though Adam is... is something of a manipulator codependent, but that's not quite the full story. And it's also, you know, Eve's got her own little quirks. And yeah, it's really just, you spend the movie getting to know them and figuring out what they're about, how they work, why mm-hmm. they function. And with the star power behind Tom and... Tilda. Tilda. Jesus Christ. How did, <laughs> I almost said Uma, and I was like, why am I yeah, Uma Thurman? That's a vibe. It's a vibe, sure, but it's not this vibe. Right. But yeah, Tilda and Tom have just such incredible chemistry with mm. these characters that it, it is incredibly just fun to watch. Yeah. And like the obvious yin-yang between them with their, their color scheme. Yes. It gets, yeah, it's not subtle, but it works. Yeah. No, it's... A hundred percent. This is fantastic. Absolutely check it out. Yeah. Moving on. <laughs> Moving on to a Wes movie. I love digging out these classics, and every time it feels like I have shown you everything from my history, another one pops up, and I go, hey, Matt, we should watch The Crow, because that was an awesome movie. And dear God, it's been over a decade since I've seen it, and I hope it's not cringier than I remember. And turns out it wasn't as cringy as you remember, except, no, it wasn't bad. (laughs) The last time I saw this, it was on a standard definition television in my boyfriend's shitty apartment at RIT. (laughs) And you really didn't notice how bad the the sets were, specifically of the city. Oh, yes. Yeah, those are really bad. Yeah, this movie did not have the best budget, but also came out... Decades ago. Yes, 1992 or 3, I believe. I think it was 93 because you said, how would you have seen this? You were one year old. Right, yes. 
But no, the movie's fantastic. Yeah, it's Brendan Lee's breakout role and sadly his only one as he did die during filming, which is kind of putting a downer on the whole whole production. It does. And then also just because of that, there's this significant weight just given how his character connects with people in the film. There is this tenderness in his voice and his performance when he talks to people. And it's almost like watching an angel speak to people. It's very, it's very spiritual. Yes. The mythology of, of this whole story and the characters in it is extremely religious and serene and it's it's darkly beautiful and it's like the perfect encapsulation of what I understand goth to be. And you know, you sit back and you go, okay, so this is what edgelords think that they're like. I get it. They think that they're cool. Yeah, yeah. It really does pull the mask off of that whole edgelord thing. And they're only, unfortunately, like the edgelords that I know seem to have only understood half of the picture when it comes to the the main character, Eric Draven, who, you know, is a trench coat wearing greasy haired badass who plays guitar <laughs> and, you know, is incredibly snarky and sarcastic and mean when he's beating people up. But, you know, there is the other side of him, a genuine tenderness and eager to help people. And unfortunately, edgelords don't seem to have the right calibration for when these moods go to certain people. No, they usually have, like, the gaslighty portion in lieu of the tenderness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, they they tell themselves they're the nice guy to get some... Uh, God. You are Eric Draven. You deserve this. Right, yes. And you have your, your perfect gothic queen, or you deserve your perfect gothic queen. Even though, you know, Eric's wife is dead and he has to redeem... There's a whole thing about this. <laughs> yes, yeah. So... Unfortunately, this character served as the archetype for that persona that we've been saddled with and countless rogues in D&D. He was certainly one of the catalysts. I don't think he was the progenitor by any means, because then the Matrix was right behind him. Well, yeah, it was seven, eight years later, but yeah, it's it's a line. It's a very clear line through pop culture. Exactly. It's probably extended into the past further, but I don't know what the next point back would be. Possibly Highlander. It's been another over 25 years since I've seen that one. Yes, another movie I have never seen, but also vaguely know about its grandioseness. Yeah. So... I'll be really scraping bottom of the barrel before I drag that one out. I was about to say, I don't know how far down this rabbit hole you want to go, but sure. Yeah, nothing against it. It's just, it was not a formative movie for me. Nope, that's completely fair. But yes, overall, The Crow is a fantastic piece of, I guess we should probably mention the plot. The plot is Eric Draven is murdered with his wife, and he is brought back from this prolific prophecy kind of methodology of it's never really explained there's yeah. just like the the intro narration kind of explains sometimes a bad thing happens and then a spirit comes back and there's a crow involved somehow don't worry about it <laughs> that's that's literally what that she says i know yeah and, you know, the sad part is, I, I literally, going into the music side of things, mm-hmm. I found out this weekend that one of Ice Nine Kills' songs that I actually love, named A Grave Mistake, 
actually was about the crow. And this whole time, I'm like, oh, I'm sure it's a, just a scary movie. Just I never had a actually launched or whatnot because I'm kind of a you know I'm kind of terrified of scary movies. Starting to get a little better about it. Starting to get a little better about it. But regardless, I was listening to it this weekend because I had it on a Halloween playlist, and I went, wait a second, this is this is. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. That's it. I didn't pick up on it either because it'd been so long since I've seen the movie. But yeah, it's a beautiful song. Just mm. a great tribute to that movie and probably my favorite Ice Nine Kills song in general. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they they're a very interesting band. Yeah. You know, the, the white the singer reminds me of someone that seems most likely to be a white supremacist of some kind. Oh. Okay. <laughs> and you know, it's it just. It, that has rubbed off on me just the wrong way. Mm. So, like, I just kind of sat back and I go, oh, so a lot of conservative people like this guy. It's one of those things I have to sit back and go, hmm. Well, I can only hope, but I might as well prepare myself in case, you know, someone decides to make an entire album about cancel culture and make a terrible message about their entire ideology. Shine down. Yeah, yeah, only a matter of time, unfortunately. Anyways, besides that, the crow is great. It is great. <laughs> There's not much to say about the plot. You know, a guy gets murdered and then he goes and kills all of his murderers, the end. But, you know, it's just beautifully told. With a lot of slow-mo that definitely felt like it was going at least a half a frame too slow. Yeah, the cinematography is a real weak point here for sure. But otherwise, yes. Otherwise, pretty solid. <laughs> I also picked up something that I decided to put myself through while Wesley was going back to work for an extended period. And the context here being The Last of Us on HBO got its trailer revealed sometime in the last month, spurring you to watch... Chernobyl. <laughs> yeah, because it's the same showrunner. Yes, I wanted to mentally prepare myself because all I have heard about is how hopeless, how dreadful, how horrifying Chernobyl is. And I said to myself, it's a, you know, you can think of it as like a disaster movie in a way. And, oh boy, <laughs> this, I don't think I have experienced this significant amount of dread, this amount of feeling a pit in my stomach in a very long time, <laughs> because you are literally watching people do the most subtlest of things in their life, and you're sitting there cringing because you know that they are just spreading radiation or touching someone that is infected with the disease and you're sitting there and just going oh my god this person is going to fucking die and it's just like watching this happen and it's like happening to children and just people that are just completely innocent bystanders in the whole scenario and it's coupled on top of the fact that we have very big world events about, like, you know, Russia bombing around Chernobyl, where the site that has housed this radiation is being shelled. And it's like, ah! Yeah. So, Chernobyl's pretty solid. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, it it was effective at the horror. Uh, yes, yes, incredibly effective. And there's one thing that I, I did want to look out for, because... I did love the analogy that people put behind it. Uh, there was a lot of visual 
cinematography put into this to kind of portray the reactor itself as otherworldly and almost Lovecraftian in a way. In the way that the the destruction of the thing just looked like almost like Cthulhu tentacles coming out of an abyss. And it was just so beautifully done because it's just this it's this force that no one has ever understood how to really contain at that point in time or really knew what we were dealing with as humans. And the fact that when this happened, it was because of this flaw in Russia's, or, sorry, the Soviet Union's <laughs> uh, system. And just to see how they tried to cover it up and just try and like shove it under a rug and just ignore that they were dealing with this almost ethereal force that just isn't of this world. And they just beautifully done it in this way that... Every time you saw the reactor, it just looked like something that did not belong in our reality. So, as an expert on nuclear reactor safety codes... (laughs) I don't know if you're asking me or telling me. I I don't know. I can't keep this going. Um, they, They framed it as very much not the technology's fault in this story, right? They framed it as the process's fault the pro okay the process there was a process failure and there was also a staffing failure on the parts of the people that were put into the situation and there was some sort of like organized crime connection to this like i thought you said kgb involvement somehow yes kgb was involved because there were whistleblowers that were like uh we're going to vienna we need to fucking tell people what happened because there are a bunch of other nuclear reactors in the Soviet Union right now that are running on these same standards. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So like, that's why they didn't... So right. they at one point they were like, we'll work with the KGB if you promise to let us go in and fix those standards before this happens and we can just leave it covered up. And then they said, yeah, we will. And then, you know, months go by and nothing happened. I see. So yeah. that's when they started, like, leaking out information to the world and then oh no (laughs) right okay and it's interesting it's like that was one of the first apparent uh knocks in the soviet union that toppled the regime yeah so it's it's just very interesting to watch and very informative it's it's an important show because we are kind of facing an energy crisis and chernobyl and now this show about it have framed a lot of public perception on the safety of nuclear technology. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, getting the framing right on this seems incredibly important. And the show seems to just be taking a, yeah, we shouldn't go near this ever approach. I don't don't think I want to say that. I think at the time, the show showed that at that time, it was something that unlike the world has ever seen. Yeah. And, like, you know... we in our reality are always testing beyond the boundaries of what we can do as humans and going beyond and also experiencing terrible, horrible things. Mm. We probably would have never anticipated a pandemic ever happening, but here we are. Here we are. And then monkeypox, which we were also completely unprepared for and didn't need to be. So didn't need to be. Well, yeah, we let smallpox vaccines go bad and... Oh, yeah. I see. Yeah. Among, okay. We should have learned our lesson and been better prepared for monkey bucks, but we're not. Yes, I see. Okay. Yes. But yes, regardless, 
I don't think that this is a thing that is trying to be a ward of caution to tamper with this. I feel like as a society, we have a much better understanding of nuclear physicism, physicist, physicistism, physicism. Fisticism. I like that. Fisticism. Yeah. This is nothing to do with fisting, right? No, it's physics and mysticism and fisting. Okay, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> well, Great, you heard it here, boys. <laughs> this is what happens when I try to actually explain things. Yes. I just create words on the fly. You and, heard it here. 100%. You've done your research. And, and fetishes. Words and fetishes. Words and yes. fetishes, yes. Oh <laughs> but yes. I believe we are at a place where we are at least understanding that. I mean, we have a nuclear reactor that is a couple miles away from us. Yeah. And then I have one literally a couple of miles away from my hometown. It's, they're kind of just everywhere now. Yeah, 21 years ago, everyone assumed that the Taliban were going to blow up their their neighborhood nuclear reactor. That they're, they're just everywhere. Yeah, it's, granted, yes, I remember... Growing up as a kid, the nuclear reactor were next to, not next to, but nearby right now. I remember in high school, they're like, that one, that's two, three hours away? Yep, we're just on the outer perimeter of being affected by that, so cross your fingers, kids. Yep. And, you know, an entire classroom of 30-some kids was terrified. Mm, Yeah. Especially, like, that on the high heels of 9-11 was like, oh, thanks, Thanks, Mr. Douglas. Yeah. Now they have I don't to give, think that's a teacher's name, but whatever. Now they have to give that lesson under desks during active shooter drills. Oh, yeah, that's right. Mm. <laughs> Great. More dark humor. Yay. Anyways, yes, Chernobyl. If you have not seen it, it is a incredible story of a cautionary tale of a tragedy that has happened to people that did not deserve it and something that is absolutely worth seeing because it, it is... As it is dreadful, it is also incredible and impactful. Counterpoint, I want to be happy. So, do you want to be happy and dream blissfully of another life of your own? Yeah, maybe in the 60s. That was a pretty cool, classy time to be. Yeah, do you have something for the 60s? Was it the music? Because you clearly like music a lot. Music is my jam. Is it your... This is going way too long. We watched Last Night in Soho, finally. (laughs) Yes. Another one that's been on our radar for, like, four years. And while looking for Halloween movies, it came up somehow. Well, I said to myself, I want to watch something spooky. And I went, you know, Last Night in Soho is on our thing. I knew it was a psychological movie. I did Mm. not know it was psychological horror. And it does have a Halloween scene. It does? Yeah. In the club. I mean, yeah, kind of, kind of. Yeah. I, 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 mm, Last Science Soho <laughs> is an Edgar Wright movie, and that is all you need to know. Go see this movie. <laughs> this, that is, you know, Anna Taylor-Joy was in it, which was my biggest draw. Then I remembered Matt Smith was in it, which, on the high heels of another show we'll get to, was like, yes, I would like to see more of Matt Smith. But, um... On top of that, I kind of wanted something to replace Baby Driver for being the last Edgar Wright movie I've seen, because... Phenomenal movie, but that Kevin Spacey... It has baggage. Yeah. Unfortunate baggage. But, 
Last Night in Soho is a movie about a young girl that is going into, what do they call it in London? University? It's just university. I I can't remember. And I I I would say, I don't think it's college, but it's like, she's going to a university. And it may have not been a standard, like, MIT or SUNY university type situation. It was certainly one that was well known for fashion. Yes. I know that much. As a designer. As a designer. And she gets accepted to the school and immediately is thrown into the college life that made me... Just go, oh, wow, I remember this for, like, the one or two nights that I eventually went out to a college party, and, wow, this is taking me back places. I hate it. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, the drama here was much more, like, fourth grade, in my opinion. Yes, it, it, it the drama between her and her roommate at the time just felt very petty and even, like, got to the point of comical humor when... It almost turned into Buffy the Vampire Slayer with naming things on your refri- in your refrigerator. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I was just like, okay. And it, it kept going to extremes. So her next move was, I need to get my own flat, which is how the plot progresses. But, you know, even months later, this original roommate is still, like, obsessed with making her life hell for no reason. For no reason. Okay. She just becomes this, like, target in a school of hundreds. It's like... At that point, I have to assume you're a lesbian and you just want to sleep with her. Possibly. (laughs) Yeah. But regardless, she goes to a new flat and then realizes when she goes to bed that she is transported back to the 60s, which is notable for her because her mother also lived in London during the 60s and had passed away unexpectedly. Yes. But she also sees her mother every so often, so it is... She's a troubled, a girl troubled by visions. Yes. And in many different senses. So she assumes the role of this young girl that is played by Anna Taylor-Joy, who is trying to become a singer in one of the clubs, and then is picked up by Matt Smith to presumably go and start that career. And as she explores... This relationship with Matt Smith in the past, Matt Smith is played uh, playing a character named Jack. As she starts to explore her relationship with Jack, she starts to slowly realize that things that happen in a dream start to happen in real life, where it's she ha- not happen in real life. Things that happen in the dream co- come into real life, where she makes out with Matt Smith, Jack, and she has a hickey on her uh, neck the next day. Yeah, the the fisticism of that whole thing is a little awkward and not quite explained. Why are but... we Why are we using the word now? <laughs> um, <laughs> but yes, it it does a good job driving tension as far as like if she dies in the dream, will she die in real life? What's going on here? And then slowly, the specters from her dreams do start haunting her even during her waking hours, and it builds to intensity. Is she going crazy? Are the spirits actually coming after her? What happened to the girl in the past? Many, many layers of mystery to to unravel and and see how things turn out. And honestly, uh, the mystery behind it is incredible. It's very fun to follow along and even guess along the way what's happening. I know I pretty much had figured it out right before the reveal. There are some telltale signs, but it's always... I always love mysteries like this where it's like, has you guessing... 
And it's, like, not too ridiculously complicated that it's, like, oh, well, I I get it. I, I, I was never going to actually guess that. Yeah, I wouldn't say I figured it out right away, but it was an option I had considered. And, you know, thinking on it, ruminating on it, I still didn't see it coming. It didn't feel unfair. Yeah. It, it Yeah. The story is well-written enough that it's not hinging on a twist at the end to shock you and, and give the movie its value. Its, mm-hmm. movie, its value is derived in many other ways. What did you think of the final girl, the, the, our lead protagonist, the actress, and her performance? Exactly what it needed to be, no notes. Okay. She, she developed her own strength and did a good enough job showing her her mental break coming on stronger and stronger. And I cared about seeing her go through with it a little dumb, but that kind of like horror movie dumb of like, just, just leave, just get on a bus and get the hell out of there. But you know, the plot needs to keep going. Yeah. That is about as far as it has to go. I, I, I I came into this movie wanting to see more Anna Taylor joy and, when I was, like, I came into this, like, months or years after watching the original trailer, just knowing that I was super interested into it. So I had no idea what the plot was going into it. But just knowing that when I started the movie and I was like, oh, she's not the lead actress, but she's on the movie poster in the center. She she has to be the yeah. lead, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> Anna Taylor-Joy does get a large portion of screen time. I was just very taken back by uh, the fact that she wasn't, like, the lead. And our protagonist does a fantastic job of what she does. I do think that it is also well supported by an incredible acting power behind her performance as well. Yeah. Do want to see more of her. Yeah. But yes, that is everything I have for it, at least. I think I'm good. I know we got a lot to get through still. We still got a lot to get through. I played Devil May Cry 5 because it looked pretty. <laughs> pretty much. You started this like a year ago or something and, and we're at the final boss for months. This oh. is like six months ago. but okay. yes. <laughs> Yeah, but you finally got it in. Yes, it's it's got some bangers. I like to button mash things. I feel like you should talk about this more than I should. <laughs> I mean, I did watch you play it and I do have more experience with the series as a whole. Capcom are storytellers. <laughs> I use that word very loosely, intentionally. With quotations. Yeah. Um, people do devote a lot of time and energy into mapping out the relationships between these characters and the deep lore, and I don't understand those people. I'm I'm glad it's there. I'm glad they're happy, but man, this series makes no sense to me whatsoever and I don't think it does it has never felt like it was intended to be made sense of. You know, there's the the loosest framework of okay, we're we're pulling some names from is it just called Dante's Inferno? Uh, yes, yes, I, I, yeah, yeah Virgil and Dante are both things in Dante's Inferno. Yes, yeah, like, which I have not read, uh, shame on me, but, so I, I would not catch any deeper references there that are being made, but it really doesn't feel like they did more than just pull those two names out and, okay, they're brothers, they fight, go, that's it, and, yeah, that's, they that's... sure act like plots happening, though. Yes, I, I mean... 
I, I literally got into this because I'm like, it looks really pretty. I love the music. Uh, let's just mash buttons for a while because I need to play something on the PS5 for once. <laughs> yeah, and I love it for that. It is just the the barest of plot as an excuse to go to the next hallway and stab a bunch more things. And that's great. The combat's really fluid and satisfying and spectacular. It's kept the beat-em-up genre alive and engaging for a modern audience, and that's awesome. It has significantly reinforced the idea that the RE engine is used for the most unfortunate and dis- flat-out boring set pieces that you've ever seen. Mm, yes. Yeah, there are a number of times where something calcifies and falls apart into teeny tiny shards, and I can only see that, like, some engineer worked for, like, six months on the shader technology required to make that happen, and they just had to reuse it wherever they could to get their value out of it, because it just, it looks exactly the same as RE7. But speaking of environments, yeah, I I hope you like your reflections and your ray traces, because, man, do they cost... They cost you any sort of environmental personality or charm or color or anything. This is a bland looking game and I, ugh, it's so hard to look at. The characters are great at least. The animations are good. The the combat effects are good. It's just, you know, compared to DMC Double May Cry, this is a boring ass world. Yeah, I guess that's also true. A lot of flat rocks and blank cityscapes. And, you know, just blue skies and clouds, if that's even seen. Yeah, there's some of that, but it's not like, you know, a beautiful sunset or... I I don't know. I don't know what I'm expecting. I'm expecting DMC Devil May Cry, but more pixels, I guess. Should we talk about the women? I'm sorry, there were women in this game? There were all of the women in this game. Yeah. They brought back Trish for some reason. She, She literally was injured for the whole game and had one line. Yeah... But, you know, they got to put her on the box, and they they could have just had her as a... They have her as a playable character. They could have just done that. I I believe... I'm trying to remember. Is it Viv, the driver? I think so. I think they were going hard on the Vs. Good job. We got, we, we see what <laughs> we, you did there. We did it. Congratulations. Yeah, you but made yes, it. Viv gets the most attention out of all the females, which, you know, person of color. Like, I'm I'm okay with this. But it does feel like, you know, there's a lot of testosterone in the room. And to the point where her performance even feels testosterone-filled. Kind of. I still really liked her character. I liked her, but, like, she she just felt like, oh, I'm just one of the boys, too. Yeah. I don't know. None of the... mm. Are these characters actually masculine, or are they just... Well, okay, yeah, they're a teenager's ideal of masculine, I think... (laughs) A hundred percent, because the other ones that do have femininity to them are quiet the whole game. Yeah, it's just that sort of broody, angsty, I'm going to be grumpy all the time, unless I'm being sarcastic. Well, I guess that's still just another form of grumpy. Yes. Yeah. But also, cowboy hat. It It is the one scene in this game that happens for five seconds. I don't understand it. It happened, it was done, and it never came up again. Yeah, just... 90 seconds of pure camp reaching heights I've never seen in a Capcom game before or since. It's inexplicable. It's wonderful. I'm glad it's in there. What the fuck? (laughs) It's some fistology or whatever. Fisticism. Fisticism. I guess it could be fistology. So that fisticism would be the practice of 
the knowledge that is fistology. We need to uncouple these words. Sure. Speaking of... <laughs> Good transition, Matt. <laughs> I need to keep this moving. We're already almost yeah. 40 minutes. Do we even hit oh, anything boy. else? Yeah. Cool. We watched Uncoupled, Neil Patrick Harris's gay rom-com that I forgot until the end of the season last night that was produced by MTV Studios, which that's great. <laughs> right. Because I, I don't know what's going on there. MTV... I assume it is still a cable network television channel that shows shitty reality television all the time. Right, but they probably produced it and then per- sold it to Netflix. Yeah, which it's weird why they don't just put that... Whatever, I, I'm not going to think about it. Nope, don't think about it. Anyways, Wesley, what do you think of Uncoupled? Uh, it's great. I'm very confused. Like, so the premise of this is that it is a gay rom-com? I don't know. Is it just a rom-com? Can we just call it that? When do we get to just call it that? We, when we, we call have... it that now because it, it starts out with Michael and Colin, a couple that's been together for 15, 17 years, and Colin decides to just move out right before his 50th surprise party, citing that he is just not happy with Michael. And the entire series shows Michael trying to move on from Colin and date other guys or sleep with other guys or multitude of other mistakes that he has made with flirting with guys. There's lots of romance just for the gay scene. Yeah, this is very much sex in the city for the gays. Okay, that's probably actually the best comment for it, yeah. Yeah, and I I think I think I like this better than Sex in the City. Sex and the City really didn't age well, for one thing. Shock value was a lot of its uh, value. And this didn't really feel like it was going for that. Mm. I can think of one sort of, like, guy of the week situation where it was like, (gasps) he did what? Uh, But it didn't really rely on that kind of reaction overall. No, it didn't seem like it did. But it, there are a lot of... Do you like watching things and putting yourself in situations and then realizing you feel really anxious watching that because you've done that? This is one of those shows. Do you, gay listener, enjoy judging other people's relationship decisions? Have we got a show for you? <laughs> you know you do. We, yeah, we, we do. We do. We that's, all do it. That's why we picked this. Yes. We just wanted to watch another gay couple that was just self-destructing in a way. Yeah, yeah. You love it. We love it. It's content. Consume. (laughs) Fistographs. Oh, God. (laughs) And, yes, Michael is a deeply flawed protagonist here. Deeply. Deeply. And part of what I'm waiting for is, is he ever going to acknowledge that? He grows, and it's interesting watching his character change, but there's still a lot more room to actually you know, dissect what happened and maybe grow from it and learn something and take something into an next relationship. But for the first half of the series, you're wondering, like, is the guy even going to come back? Is this a show about them getting together or is it really about moving on? And you do get clear answers to that. Or at least you're told that you will get clear answers to that in season two. Yes, because this does leave off in a point where I went, wait, why is it not playing the next episode? Wait, are you serious? That's it? Yeah, yeah. And it's it's sort of understandable that 
Michael's storyline ends where it does, but one of his friends ends it at a completely unsatisfying moment. There's a lot of just unsatisfying moments in that finale, and it's unfortunate because you and I mostly said we need to watch this, like, immediately because... Queer Force got canceled. Q yep. Force got canceled. Yeah. On top of that, Bros was not seeing the best box office numbers, and we said, well, we really should just start watching every fucking gay content, I guess. Yeah, which I, th- I think this one's done a lot better by whatever standards, just because, you know, Bros is movie theaters and it has the baggage of movie theaters. Yes, I think it's at least been doing a lot better on video on demand. I'm a swing. I don't I'm a see swing. those. I don't see those numbers. Same. So, yes, Uncoupled is a fantastic rom-com if you want to live vicariously through the life of a 50-ish-year-old gay man that just recently turned single in this very unpredictable hellscape of dating, which is what I hear from people that are in a very similar situation. Yeah, yeah. Oh, boy. Well, (sighs) I'm gonna go get drunk. You have fun with this one. Well, I decided that after letting Wesley watch the first episode with me, I would continue House of the Dragon. I will preface this by saying, I know last episode I had some harsh comments about this show, and I still stand by those harsh comments, but the last two episodes significantly made me feel a little better about the begin- the prospect of this show going forward. This show still shows a bunch of gay bashing, and it is unforgivable in my opinion, and I Anyone that says to me, oh, well, he shouldn't have been poking the bear because that was just a dumb move. Yeah, that's fair. Why wasn't it a fucking straight person that did that? Because a gay man wouldn't be flouting around the fact he's fucking the guy who's marrying a straight bitch. Yeah, we're we're still on a moratorium for having brutal gay deaths depicted on screen, in my opinion. It's... Uh, I'm just disappointed i (laughs) i'm sitting here going i just don't want gays in the equation (laughs) in this representation (laughs) because everyone's like oh well this is a show where everything has a bad ending and it's just everyone's unlikable and i'm like i get that but still i don't need to watch a gay man get brutally murdered by punching Rafaeli in the face until he is dead but also i don't get that why isn't life unhappy enough why do you need it from your media too look outside (laughs) look oh my god anyways anyways it's it's fine (laughs) i will say i had an initial This show is just a lot of straight people fucking, gay bashing, and just kind of watching very light political intrigue in the first half of the season. Mm. Later, the last two episodes specifically do ramp up a lot. There is at least a good potential happiness for one of the gay characters... I will not say what has happened because I do not want to spoil it because it is also changing things from the book specifically as well. And anyone that keeps coming up to me and saying, well, what happens to that gay character now? And I'm like, nothing. He never comes back. He will be out of the story and never heard from again. And that would be the best thing. Yep. (laughs) But regardless, Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon, it's 
it's the hot shit. It's everyone's talking about it. I'm here to say that it is enjoyable towards the end if you're willing to sit through eight hours, sorry, seven hours of just people getting pregnant, giving obscene amounts of birth. I don't know why we had to watch all these. Yeah, I I watched the first episode. I watched the last episode. Both of them were just brutally violent childbirths with really unsettling imagery. I think it was the last episode that cut between, you know, her pushing a human out of her vagina and dragon teeth. Oh, yes. (laughs) To just really drive home, I guess her vagina looks like a dragon's mouth, I guess. I don't it's I don't know. It's imagery saying that she is a dragon. Her <laughs> vagina is a dragon. Oh my god. Apparently. This, and this this is something that needed this the cinematography depended on this similarity, apparently. Well, the cinematography also makes sure that it is comparing itself consistently to the Shrek series and How to Train Your Dragon as well. So there's that. Oh yes, those memes were delightful. <laughs> also the Matrix Revolutions. Ooh, if you've seen that, you know how this ends. Anyways. Ooh, I I'm gonna need to probe you about that later. But, sure. Mm. Anyways, yes. If you are listening to this, you are probably here to listen to my frustrations about House of Dragon, and that's about it. And yes, it's just because of the gay bashing, and otherwise, it was a decent ride, once it was not horrifying to watch. Everything about Game of Thrones moving forward that I experience will be against my will. That is my word on it. So, if you hear about that, and it's not a solo review from me, I have strapped him down because apparently he needs to watch it yep anyways your turn wesley you had a much better adventure on your own i had such a good adventure and we have to start this one together because we forgot to ever talk about harley quinn season three god damn it which is sort of where this starts which (laughs) was amazing we get our lovely lesbian couple harley quinn and poison ivy yes we do and they actually commit to their relationship dynamic. You know, I'd, I'd never expected this show to be the one to have them, like, break up immediately and have it be about that, but... But they, they, they have their struggles, and it doesn't get... Like, I don't think that they're ever going to make them break up. I think that is just something we don't need to watch as people that are expecting queer content. Yeah, yeah. And I was happy, like, it got close in this season, but they clearly veered away from it pretty quick. Yeah, relationships must be tested. You have to prove that you can overcome your struggles, so the struggles have to be significant. Of course. Yeah. I I don't think it 100% worked. Like, right at the end, a couple things felt like they were kind of hand-waved with Poison Ivy's whole gambit, her plans yes and how they came to fruition and sort of mm, it worked well enough i don't care i'm just so happy seeing them together that i'm willing to forgive a lot of that and getting a lot more of the bat family this season which was interesting it was interesting and especially bruce because we got a lot of relationship issues with bruce and selena in this season what I keep, the, the sentence I keep reaching for is it really feels like a continuation of Batman the Animated Series. 
But I have to say that in hindsight, because at the time of watching season three, I hadn't seen Batman the Animated Series. Which we will get to. We will get to. But yeah, it does feel like a continuation of Batman the Animated Series, picking up with the character Bruce that you know and all of his little kids in roughly the same roles with roughly the same motivations and relationships and backstories, and it's all believable. And I will tell you why you're wrong, because I think you've also realized why you're wrong in that thinking. Maybe? I mean, certainly things are dialed up. Like Nightwing, for example, the chip on his shoulder's definitely a little bit bigger. Or does it just feel that way in a show that's otherwise so comedically grounded? Yeah, it's probably that. But also... I think the ideology of continuation of any of these characters coming from one original point is highly unlikely ever because Batman as a concept is like Greek mythology. Yes, that is something that I observed watching Batman the Animated Series when I finally got to it is, yeah, things are not going to line up 100%. And I, I feel like the MCU did such a good job of unifying everything to one single storyline but DC just really can't do that for some reason. It, it, you know, the comics are fucked on both sides with this, and it's so many reboots and retcons that it's impossible. But something about DC just does feel more mythological. In a way, yes. Yeah. It is why everything is able to, in the same time, be connected intermittently and also at the same time be separate. But yeah, Harley Quinn. Do we have anything more to say about that in the distant memory? From- I was going to say, it's it's great. You still get the same antics that you would have gotten in season one and season two. Are we sure this isn't season four? Might be season four. I, th- I really thought it was three, though. The latest season of Harley Quinn yeah. is great. <laughs> it, it's, it's phenomenal, yes. We also have a Valentine's Day special coming up this February. Aw, so that's sweet. We yes. will also see more of them very soon. Yeah. But with the release of Gotham Knights, which I'm going to talk about a little bit, I did decide to do some homework and watch the entirety of Batman the Animated Series. Because, like I said, I'd never seen it. And every other piece of Batman media I come across seems to use that as some sort of point of reference. Because everybody apparently saw it. But I was a little bit disappointed to find in the first, like, half of it, it just, you know... I I was hoping to see Dick Grayson's origin story. I was hoping to see, like, some interesting character developments for Barbara Gordon, for her relationship with Bruce, and it's really, it's not, it's not important at all. Like, they just, Robin literally just shows up, and Batman's like, hey, it's episode eight, let's do a thing together. You can disappear for another ten episodes after that, whatever. Yeah, this is the thing, I grew up on this show, and it's... It's interesting to think about this as a kid where it's just like, oh yeah, they that's Robin. That's fine. And then as an adult watching, it's like, but where the fuck did he come from? <laughs> yeah, and eventually it goes back. It never really does like a, a proper flashback of it and, and very minimal as far as, you know, actually establishing any relationship growth between him and Bruce. But yeah, I was just expecting more somehow. That's, uh, it's one of those things, you slowly get bits and pieces, like, I'm assuming you didn't see anything about the Gra- Flying Graysons then? No, there's, there's one episode that explores that okay. in detail, at least. And yeah, it's, it's always just, oh, it's that one episode, mm-hmm. but it's always filling something in that you were already supposed 
to be to have assumed in the back of your head. You're already supposed to understand Robin and, and Batman's dynamic before they reveal just, oh, what happened to Dick Grayson? His parents died. Mm-hmm. But you already knew that. So we'll go through the motions and show you. But it doesn't really add anything. No, it does just establish, if anything. I guess it was... a. I think this was the establishment of Nightwing, though, correct? For the animated series, For the yes. animated series. Okay, I... And then also grazes right over Jason Todd because of oh yeah reasons. So I did also watch Under the Red Hood, which you know introduced and summarily killed Jason Todd and and brought him back and did that whole thing in one go. So I you know I I assume the comics did a long run of introducing Jason Todd and developing him before this point, but from my perspective, it was just. Ah, it was good. It was such an amazing movie, and it would have hit so much harder if I had any stronger connection to Jason Todd before the movie. But it's like halfway through, we already understand who this character is, and then it it shows you like a 30-second clip flashback of them meeting in an alley that doesn't really add anything. Which, I'm not trying to shit on it for this. I'm just trying to hammer home that the backstories and the justifications for how we got here never matter. It's always just the quality of the story we're telling now. That's Yeah, that's been Batman, and that's probably why... So one of the things about the animated series is everyone has their favorite episode. Yeah, and there are a lot of candidates. There are a lot of candidates. Yeah. The biggest ones always come up with Almost Got Him being the, the most common one, I feel like. Mr. Freeze's... Mr. Freeze's one. I'm trying to remember yeah. the name of it now, but I'm uh, blanking on it. It is something really highbrow, like Requiem for a Rose or something like yeah, that. It, yeah, it, it, it almost sounded like Citizen Kane-esque yeah. in a way. My personal one is his so-called heart, which, sure. Sure. <laughs> and surprisingly, mine is not one of the couple of episodes dealing with werewolves. It was the, the trial Right. <laughs> yes, the, the trial of Batman. <laughs> that was such so hysterical. Such amazing writing on that. Uh, it's it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. You see why people go head over heels for Mark Hamill as Joker. It it does recontextualize a lot, especially under the Red Hood. Oh yes. Because <laughs> yeah, it's kind of just like a playful Joker throughout the animated series run, but it does hit so hard when you realize. Like, Kevin Conroy's response to it, he's always taking everything Joker does dreadfully seriously. And he should, because mm-hmm. it's awful. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, the, oh, God, their dynamic. I, I get it so much stronger now after watching that. I, see, I want to show you the killing joke, but I don't want to show you the killing joke. Well, yeah, that is one I skipped. I, it is, if you go halfway through the movie... And just watch the halfway through the end, which is just... That covers just the comics, then. Mm. That's great. Yeah. Everything before that is absolute garbage. Yeah, because I know they do Barbara Gordon real dirty. And I know who Barbara Gordon is now. And I'm like... Yeah, I don't want to see anything happen to her. Well... Especially what I know happens to her. I mean, yes. that, That happens in the comics regardless. What they do is... More damning oh, <laughs> in the content they added. Right. It's it's gross. <laughs> but yes, anything else that you have to add about 
the Batman experience you've had recently. I would say hold Gotham Knights till we review it properly, because we're almost an hour into this episode. Okay, fine. I'm just going to quickly say Return of the Joker is the only other thing that I saw, which was excellent. You do not need to watch Batman Beyond for it to make sense. Watch Batman Beyond. I'll probably get to it. And one word about Gotham Knights, in case you were on the fence about getting it, I haven't played any other Arkham games. Those are probably better. Spider-Man is better, but... This is fine. It's a good game. Is it worth $70? Do you have $70? That's the main factor. Anyways, tabletop updates. We're getting like one minute each. Yeah. Okay, (laughs) do you want to go first or me? No, you go first. Uh, Unless you're not ready. No, I did an amazing flashback. One of my characters found a piece of an artifact weapon, uh, a hammer from old Norse times, so I got to have them play old Norse gods who were werewolves. We had, like, Fenrir versus Odin, and everyone was playing mythological characters, and it was just sort of like, here are your stat blocks, go, fight each other. Then there was a heist where half my players died. That was set in the Wild West, and it was just like, roll to see if you can get the the plans for the train. Oh, shit, you got a one. Well, see if you can figure out what's in this car anyway. Oh, shit, you investigated and got a one. The car explodes. It was trapped. You're dead. All right, another 10 minutes. Cool. You stole the silver. We're moving on. Uh, Then third scene was in the mid-90s, filled in some character backstories there. At that time, I was running over long and did not want to extend this flashback into another session. So I was playing real fast and loose. I literally threw out one of the puzzles I had planned and just had the spirit demand that the pack sing 90s pop because it was in the 90s so yeah they had a couple fun minutes of of reminiscing about 90s pop and gave me a good four measures of i I can't remember what they went with man that's sad thriller they went with thriller which is not 90s but anyways (laughs) uh (laughs) it was it was so much fun and like all of the the big reveals got worked in. I made it relevant to players that weren't even looking for the artifact weapon and and just sort of came back from a long hiatus, strong, having fun, recapping everything that's happened so far and had an amazing time. So that's my update. My update. It's always our time in Philadelphia. We also came back from a long hiatus, which was kind of intermittently splashed with one-on-ones that took place over the time jump. The Coterie's back. Celeste has been acquitted of the Blood Hunt, and Cassius is put behind bars. Uh, They are going to the Philadelphia airport to retrieve their friends, who they sent overseas to be safe. But, oh no, the Second Inquisition has been informed of a package, quote, payload of a blank body coming into play. The players now have to go down and make sure that the Second Inquisition doesn't get their new friends. So they decide to stock out the... Philadelphia Airport, discover that there is a team of six people. There's two people that look like they're in charge. There are four other goons and a sniper. They decide to cut the tires to the vehicles that they're using, also take out the sniper, realize that one of the people in charge is actually one of Eddie, a.k.a. the new player, a.k.a. Jesse, one of the people that they remember from their past. Oh, no! (laughs) And then, also, Magnolia decides to hijack a 
propane truck to drive up alongside the plane when it lands. Meanwhile, the other two in the Escalade drive up on the other side of the plane to get both the kindred below the plane because they rip a hole in the hull to get them out of the cargo bay. The other two that were ghouls were jumping from the plane onto the propane truck that then detaches the propane tank behind it and explodes on a bunch of cops <laughs> because we want to kill the police, I guess. <laughs> and the player quote said, I don't have to pay my speeding tickets now, which became an inside joke and ha ha ha. They escape eventually with just barely getting by and Eddie getting three aggravated damage from true faith because now they have to worry about true faith being used by the second inquisition. And on top of that, they went back and were asked about date night next session, which they will go to Top Golf. Sure, why not? <laughs> you know, when I'm finished blowing up airports with explosive barrels, there's nothing that takes the edge off better than a, a nice round of putt putt. <laughs> Anyways, let's let's move on from there to to the news. The news. Uh, Geralt is. Is being recasted. Yeah. Geralt. Henry Cavill's Jageralt is out. Liam Hensworth's Gageralt is in. Yes. Geralt is being recasted as Liam Hemsworth because of what I assume is only because of the writing staff at this point. You know, I, I, I always take these news headlines with a grain of salt, but there has been a narrative here, a strong narrative for years of Henry Cavill. Headlines like, Henry Cavill agrees to continue for all seven seasons under one condition. And slowly planting the seeds that, like, Henry Cavill is just a Witcher mega fan and maybe is now having creative differences with the writing direction. Maybe they aren't being as faithful to the books. Who knows for sure, but that's the story being told. I'm, you know, I'm pretty certain just given the the track work of it and how dedicated he is to that role, that really checks out. And it's really unfortunate that that's where it's leading to. If that's the case, we'll really find out in this next season when it comes out next year. But like, it's sad. It's sad to see happen. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that Henry Cavill himself broke the news on this with uh, a post on either Twitter or Instagram. I think Instagram. On everything, basically. Basically saying, Liam Hensworth is more than capable of doing this job of portraying this deeply nuanced and very interesting character that I've had a pleasure of playing. Like, really hammering home that he had a specific vision for, for who Gajeralt was. Oh my god, stop. <laughs> <laughs> what, man? <laughs> Anyways. Your Fistafarian is being terrible this evening. <sighs> That's because my kajiggers broke. Anyways. Yes, I I personally am concerned at the moment. Initially, I was like, well, that sucks, but, you know, Liam Hemsworth has a face. He does. Like, he's he's got a decent enough build for this. Yes. I... I honestly don't understand all of this depth and complexity to Jigeralt. Say it! <laughs> Whatever his name is. Because, really, he just seems like a, a grim, gravelly, grim face. Uh, it's it's complicated. I'm not going to get into nuancy details of it, but yes, it's, it's fine. We'll I'm see sure, what happens. I'm sure book readers understand. Yes, we do. 
we do. <laughs> but on top of that, it's more or less I am just waiting to see what Netflix is going to say. Because at this point, the internet is a hotbed of hot takes. I'm sure. And I'm very curious to see if anyone else is going to actually address this. Because at the moment, outside of you and I, it seems like everyone's angry. Yeah. And, yeah, I think, like, I'm concerned. But I'm not angry because, you know... See, I was concerned initially. I am kind of leaning towards angry, especially after seeing laid out before us the progression of interview after interview of him saying how he tried so hard to fight to be more book accurate. Yeah, I guess I just don't have much investment in this series. It's great. I've enjoyed watching it, but okay, my life will go on. Wow. Sorry. Anyways, speaking of people being recasted, let's jump down the bayonetta voice actress phenomenon that's been going on because oh last we talked God. this <laughs> last we talked it was just a problem in the industry that yeah. someone got paid four thousand dollars for a speaking role it was some some juicy hot goss and now it's like oh my god chernobyl um helen helena i don't know what the fuck her last name is at the moment and it doesn't matter because she's a fucking bitch and i i I hate to go to this level, but yeah, that's how bad this got. Unfortunately, uh, she's she's quite an asshole. Yeah. So she starting she, with she lied about her initial claim that yeah. she only paid four thousand. Which oh my god, what were you hoping to accomplish? Yeah. <laughs> Just <sighs> were you think like granted. We came to everyone's defense in that point. We were defending her because, like, yeah, she's just asking for a livable wage. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of ridiculous that your main actress is getting paid that much. And then just to be told otherwise, I was like, oh, okay, so that's something. Yeah. But then on top of that, it gets worse. It gets so much worse. Because then now the thing is... When you decide to make big claims, people start looking at you and start looking at your history. She's quite the transphobic pro-life piece of shit. I'd heard pro-life. I, I don't oh, think i Oh, transphobic heard is, okay. yes. I, I remember reading how people have said, can you say in Banda's voice, trans rights are human rights? And she went on this whole tirade of, I don't want to exclude people. I just want to make sure everyone is happy Trump voters and Biden voters, black and white, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, mm. this is this is some turf. It's turf talks that are just, yeah. Yeah, it's uncomfortably close to all lives matter. Not inherently as damning, or at least not well, nearly as damning as what she actually she, did from there. She also said that she wanted to support men and women. And not saying, you know... Yeah, ignore the non-binaries. Yes, yeah. and just ignore... Yes. Anyways, so, then, on top of that, just finding out her dirty closet and dirty laundry, it's it's great. And then she decides, because she was saying, everyone should boycott. And if you boycott, you should donate to these charities. Guess who decided to just throw out a pro-life charity in this listing of charities to donate to? Yeah. Helena. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> this is not what I expected of Bayonetta. Well, she's not Bayonetta she's anymore. She's not Bayonetta. 
Bayonetta anymore. Jennifer Hale stepped in, stepped up, delivered an outstanding performance from the sounds of things so far. So far, I love Mommy Dare. She can step on me all day. Anyways. And is being utterly professional through this, even as Mud is being slung at her now for even being involved. Yeah, it's... Wow. Mad respect for that woman. Yeah, I, you know... I respected her so much before this. I know last episode we were talking about how it's a little... It's weird how she's not getting as involved as we would expect, given her gravitas in the voice acting community. And now it makes sense. Yes. Yeah. It's almost like you're trying to, like... You're advocating for a movement, and then there's, like, some kind of shitty, like, Trump-supporting kind of individual that is technically in the movement, and you have to still support them regardless? Yeah, this this reminds me ever so vaguely of Ron Howard stepping in to take over Solo, where it's like, oh, <laughs> we had a real trash fire on our hands, so one of the most respectable people in the business decided to come in and salvage what he could. That sounds about right, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, moving on, we have Venom 3. Screenwriter Kelly Marcel has been put onto the project and confirming that Venom 3 is happening. It's happening! It's, it's happening! It's probably still not part of the MCU and is probably never going to actually get the whole Sony Universe MCU right, but, you know, the Venom movies have been fun. They've been fun, significantly better than Morbius. Yes. And... Whatever the fuck Craven the Hunter and Madam Web Why yeah. is going to be. We'll see. You know, if they have learned their lesson and are going to ditch the connected universe bullshit, they might come out with decent solo films. I, I fucking... They need to not connect the universes because they keep thinking that, like, the Spider-Man No Way Home spell is something that is within their, like, headspace of what it is, and it actually isn't. No. So, anyways, yes. And last but not least, we have Werewolf 5th Edition is finally getting announced and released and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, it'll probably be out in about a year. And Justin McKilly, one of the lead designers on it, pretty much the, the face of the designers for World of Darkness, has finally released some real juicy details about the TTRPG. And I won't get into all of them here, but Too Long Didn't Listen is they're taking some real big swings, taking away some big chunks of the lore, some of which are just wholly incompatible with earlier editions. And, of course, a lot of people are super salty about that. I, personally, am of the mindset that you can always find interesting ways to house rule, and I've found solutions to bringing things back that I like a lot better than any edition has put forth so far. So I'm kind of glad I had the opportunity to flex that creative muscle. That's great. Uh, at the end of the day, these are games, and especially now, there's a lot more competition out there. Things need to be a lot more accessible. You can't get bogged down in millennia of history right out of the gate. That's not necessarily the focus. You know, we need to be accessible to people watching streams. And Anyways, I don't want to get into the specifics, but I am very happy with the direction that they're taking. This seems like it's going to be much more about what I consider the themes and tropes of playing a werewolf character to be. So I'm happy, but it's a very awkward, sticky situation. And be prepared for the fandom to be the worst if you investigate this with them. And that's about all I got there. 
that's about all I want to talk about in this episode. Thank you very much as we rapid fire shot all this shit. Yes. We are very happy for you to give us the time of day yep. and share in our lovely speaking voices because we know how much time is valuable in people's lives. And Especially mine because it's getting hoarse because I've actually talked a lot more this episode. But yes, thank you for listening. <laughs> we love you very much. Practice safe misfisticism. And we will see you in next... In two weeks? Yes, in yeah. two weeks during the next... Fist cycle. Anyways, bye. Bye bye.